Well, good morning. If you're a guest with us, it's good to see you this morning. I'm so glad that you've chosen to worship here. My name is Raymond Johnson. I serve as one of the pastors here at Christ Church. And it's a privilege to serve you. And because it's a privilege to serve you, as Pastor Renee mentioned, we have a guest card underneath the seat in front of you. But if you came without a Bible, we also have a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. You could just reach underneath that seat, grab one of those Bibles. We'd love for you to take one of those home with you if you don't have a copy of God's Word that you can call your own. And just consider that a gift from us to you today. And you could take that Bible now and turn with me to John's Gospel. Our time together this morning will be greatly helped and far more enjoyable if you keep a copy of God's Word open throughout the duration of this portion of the service, the sermon. If you're not very familiar with the Bible, the large numbers are chapter numbers and the small numbers are verse numbers. And you should be able to find John's Gospel on page 886 of one of those Bibles. We're going to begin reading in John 1 verse 19 in just a few moments. About 55 years after the resurrection of Jesus, John composed this gospel with a lot of care for one purpose, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And we have reminded ourselves each week as we're studying this gospel that we have to ask ourselves, how does this passage fulfill John's purpose for us to believe that the Christ is the Son of God and that by believing we might have life in his name? If you're a Christian... How does this passage teach you about the Christ so that your faith might be strengthened in the Word made flesh? And if you're here and you're not a Christian, how does this passage teach you about the Christ that you might have eternal life? We all have an opportunity to ask ourselves those questions afresh today. As we turn our attention to John 1, John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authorities of Jesus Christ himself we're here speaking to us today. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, 
Where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who had heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus descended to go to Galilee, decided to go to Galilee. He followed Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found the one of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the water jars, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, he did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us now to believe. We pray that you would help our unbelief. We know that we approach this moment like so many moments in our life with doubt with unbelief, with uncertainty, fear perhaps that what we have staked our lives on is false. Coming to these moments, needing what the enemy would seek to snatch from us, the words of eternal life. Father, we ask that you would help our unbelief now, that you would help us to believe, that you would stir our affections so that as those who have believed, we would continue to believe more deeply more greatly in the promise of the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. Father, I pray with the believers here today, for those who have not yet trusted in this Christ, that you would do the good work of redeeming grace now and that you would cause all who have not yet trusted in Jesus to believe in Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. In the opening 18 verses of John's gospel, we hear the Apostle John's witness as he unfolds for us what it means for the word to be made flesh. And then from chapter 
1 verse 19 all the way to chapter 1 verse 34, we hear the witness of John the Baptist who is telling us that this Jesus, this Christ, the Word made flesh, is the Lamb of God. And now in verses 35 through 51, we hear the witness of some of Jesus' earliest followers. And a common denominator along the way is that each person recognized this Jesus to be the long-awaited one. Each one recognized that this Jesus was the fulfillment of all of God's promises to draw all people together to be his own people. The words witnesses all agree in John chapter 1 that Jesus is the one God promised. And to substantiate that claim, two points will be made in our time together today. Look at him, you will see, and follow me, you will see. And there will be seven subpoints. Notice first, look at him, you will see. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Last time we saw in John 1, there was a running sequence of day that begins in John chapter 1, verse 19. And the climax is actually in this miraculous transformation of water into wine that so many of us are familiar with in John chapter 2, verse 9. Beginning the day that there's a delegation sent to interrogate John the Baptist in chapter 1, verse 19, we observe John's testimony as a witness regarding Jesus. He is the Lamb of God. Then on the second day, John actually announces that for all people to hear as he sees Jesus coming by in chapter 1, verse 29. The next day when he saw Jesus coming toward him. And now on the third day, John refers refers two of his disciples to Jesus in chapter 1, verse 35. The next day, as he was standing with these two disciples... And if you look at the footnote that many of you have in your Bible at the end of verse 39, you see that it was already 4 p.m. on the third day when those two disciples asked if they could spend the rest of their day with Jesus. So it's on the fourth day that Andrew, in verse 31, introduces his brother, Simon Peter, to Jesus. And then on the fifth day, Philip and Nathanael follow Jesus when he said, in verse 43, and decides to go to Galilee. The reference to the third day in chapter 2, verse 1, means two days after the fifth day, The sixth day is the only day not mentioned in the chapter. This means the changing of water into wine happens on the seventh day at the end of Jesus' first week of ministry. Now, all of that seems complicated, but why is that so important for John to go all these links that we might count days as we're paying attention to Jesus' life? Because from the very beginning to the end of that first week of ministry, the Word's witnesses are proclaiming one thing. Jesus is the one God promised. He is the one that they have been looking for. He is the one that they have been waiting for. He is the one that they have been praying for. He is the one that they have been hoping for. And friends, he is that for you today as well. And now in this section, we hear the testimony of the Word's witnesses along with all of the titles that they ascribe to him. And they are impressive titles indeed. Notice first, Lamb of God in verse 36. The next day... Again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. For the second time, John the Baptist announces Jesus as the Lamb of God, and he once again draws our attention to the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in the person of the ministry of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who solves our greatest problem, the problem of sin. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me to Isaiah 53. 
We might think John the Baptist, a strange wilderness wanderer, a somewhat eloquent person, is just saying what first comes to his mind, and he calls Jesus the Lamb of God. But this was not unsubstantiated for John the Baptist. Familiar with the Old Testament, he's immediately evoking passages like Isaiah 53, familiar passages to anyone who comes to church regularly. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Jesus is the lamb that God provided to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to take away our sins. And brothers and sisters, the depth of his love for us is made evident in the fact that he took away the one thing that could threaten to undo us eternally. That he took away the one thing that could ruin our life forever spiritually, our sin. In his holiness, Jesus hates sin more than sinful people like you and I could ever imagine. But in his great love for us, John tells us, That instead of losing us to our sin, he hides our sin. He covers our sin. He bears with our sin. And he forgives all of our sin when we repent of our sins and place our faith in him. And breathtakingly, incomprehensibly, he does it by taking our sins upon himself. Because Jesus took on our flesh and nature when he became man... And because he bore our sin as our substitute on the cross, Jesus always understands what we are going through. Friends, many of us, when we approach Jesus, we think as if he does not understand. He's not looking. He's not paying attention. There's no way that he can know what we are going through. Yes, he was truly man, but he was also God, and he was able to exempt out of this life and all of its pain somehow. But that is not the Bible uh, that Jesus presented to us in the Bible. This is why he is such a compassionate Savior and an ending source of grace and mercy for us in all of our times of need. And in response to this great love, Christians should strive to be faithful to him and value him more than anything else. We receive from Jesus perfect, abundant love. We receive from him a love greater than anything that we could ever imagine. And we see all that Jesus did and all that he does for us moved him to humble himself for us so we treasure him more than anyone else and any other person in our life. Friends, the absurdity of following Jesus is that we actually come to value Jesus more than anybody else in our life, more than our families, more than our kids, more than our own success and fame and even our own selves. As we pursue Jesus in holiness and obedience to his command, Now, perhaps you're here today, and what you've been taught about Jesus is that obedience is somehow the opposite of being freely loved by Jesus. In fact, many of you maybe have even shared the gospel with somebody where you have said things like, being a Christian isn't rules, it's a relationship. And as far as it goes, on one hand, that is completely true. We never earn God's favor by performing religious rules or rituals or trying to keep the law as best we can. But believer, if you understand the gospel... 
the good news of what God has proclaimed to us in Christ, that God is transforming us into the image of His Son, that all of His commands lead us to what is good and right and pleasing to Him, then how could your love for Jesus look like anything other than obedience to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away your sin? Friends, you simply will not enjoy this Jesus if you're mistreating your spouse. You simply will not enjoy this Jesus if you're constantly consuming pornography. You simply will not enjoy this Jesus if you're stealing money from your employer by showing up late and leaving early or actually stealing money. You will not enjoy this Jesus if you're not obedient to this Jesus. You will not feel closeness to this Jesus or the pleasure of this Christ by withholding love from your fellow brothers and sisters in the church, by refusing to identify with God's people in membership in a local church, or by failing to give generously of what God has entrusted to you for the expanse of the gospel and the mission of the church, or by refusing to forgive people who have sinned against you because somehow you have been uniquely sinned against in a way that no one has ever been sinned against. If you're a Christian, you will not be happy following this Jesus if you're not obedient to his commands. But friends, if you are following this Jesus, you do not have to stay away. You don't have to worry about whether Jesus will receive you afresh today. You don't have to worry whether Jesus will forgive you today. Jesus cherished you despite your sin when he brought you to himself. And Jesus loves you still. Do not waste another moment on your sin. Turn away from your sin and trust in this Christ afresh. Repent of your sin, fellow believer today. Joyfully follow this Jesus in obedience. Non-Christian, if you're here today and you don't have communion with this Jesus, he made a way for you to have a relationship with him like he did for all of the believers who are here today. He made a way for you to have fellowship with him by dying in your place on the cross. As he substituted himself for sinners like you and being raised from the dead so that you might be declared righteous before God. The astonishing mercy of this Jesus is that as sinful as you are, he would make you so right with God that when you stand before God, you might be declared holy, blameless, and above reproach in Jesus. If you would just simply turn away from your sins. We use that language of repentance. And what we are asking you to do is to say, God, I love you and not my sin. And I'm leaving my sin to follow you. And I'm going to do everything in my power to throw it off and to place faith. That is, believe in this Jesus as he is presented in this gospel. Truly God and truly man. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Truly human who understands what it's like to be you. Friends, I'm convinced that one of the reasons that we don't draw near to Jesus more closely is we are convinced that he doesn't understand. But friends, he does. He gets you. And he loves you. And he loves you enough to not leave you as you are, to make you different this side of eternity so that you would be changed forever throughout all of eternity. And you can do that today, right now, if you would simply trust in this Jesus. You can enjoy all of the freedom that a believer knows that actually Pastor Renee prayed about earlier by confessing your sins and believing that Jesus is raised from the dead by turning away from them and hoping in this Christ. 
And friends, if you have questions about what that means, we are so glad that you're here. We'd love to open the Bible with you following the service. I'll be standing at that tunnel as you exit the sanctuary today. There will be pastors at the doors in this building today who would love to speak with you. There are members here who would love to open the Bible with you. But friends, let me simply tell you that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. John intentionally directed his disciples' attention to the Lamb of God, this Jesus. Behold, and as a result, two of the men that were with John, verse 37, followed Jesus, bringing us to our second title. Verse 38, Rabbi. The two men apparently did not inform Jesus of their immediate interest to get to know Jesus. So they did what any self-respecting person would do when a celebrity walks by. They followed him at an awkward distance. But Jesus catches them off guard when he looks at them, verse 38, and he asks, what are you seeking? The question makes sense in John's straightforward narrative. He's just laying out who Jesus is, one fact after another, when he asks, what's on your mind? But it also probes deeper for us as John's readers listening today, as Jesus confronts anybody who would follow him to articulate what they really want in life. Friends, let me ask you, what is it that you want in life? And that you think Jesus will give to you. Why do you follow him? Is it because of what you think that he will do for you? Or is it because of who he is? Some of us have come to Jesus because we're so racked with guilt. Not because we actually want to follow Jesus. We just don't want a guilty conscience. Friends, that's not a follower of Christ. And some of us have come to Jesus because we want the better life that everybody tells us that we'll have if we follow Jesus. One with a spouse and respect. One with friends and a family. One with converted kids and no stress. But Jesus' question probes much deeper. And it teaches us to beware of seeking Jesus for selfish reasons rather than out of love for him. Friends, if you follow Jesus for selfish reasons, and are you serving him for the same? That will never merit God's favor. And it won't bring pleasure in this Christ. But Jesus questions them, and he probes deeper. And on the fly, the best that these two followers can come up with is to answer Jesus' question with another question. Verse 38, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? John translates the Aramaic word for his Greek-speaking readers so that they and all of us don't miss the significance as they put themselves in the position of students to a master, teaching us that those who follow Jesus must be ready to learn from Jesus. Are you a know-it-all in regards to your Christian faith? Living as if you already know all of the right things to do and never learning? Coming here on Sunday and really turning away the correction that the service offers you because you know what you need to do? And pushing people away who correct and try to sharpen you in the middle of the week because you've heard it all before? Or shutting down when we open the Bible because you said, I've heard sermons from this passage. Or are you a student, a student to a master, humbling yourselves to learn so that you can actually live? Good discipler that Jesus is. Verse 39, he invites the two men to spend the evening with him so that they might be around him and hear him talk and see the way that he lives. Since it was already late in the day anyways, verse 39, come and you will see. And after an evening of talking with Jesus, and you can imagine how wonderful it would have been to spend the evening talking with Jesus and questioning Jesus and asking him, what is this like 
verse 40, one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was so elated that he went the next day to find his brother and to bring him to Jesus. Verse 41, one of the two who had heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's, Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. His natural response to being close to Jesus was to announce the discovery of the Messiah to other people and tell them about Jesus. And so he became the first in a long line of successors that we see in the Gospels who discovered the most effective, most common Christian testimony is the private witness from friend to friend, brother to brother, family member to family member, fellow members of this church. Are you discouraged in your evangelism? Perhaps you have simply overcomplicated it. One of my friends, Matt, Matt, Matt Smithhurst, recently asked, why do people start attending church? And this is what he said from a research poll. From advertisement, 2% of people come to church. From an organized visit on your website where you can fill out all the information, 6% of people come to church. From the invite from a pastor, 6% of people come to church. But from the invite of a friend, 86% of people come to church. Friends, are you inviting those who are closest to you to come and see that Jesus is the one that God promised? Are you inviting people around you to come and see that he is the Messiah, the Christ? Are you inviting people to see that he is the teacher who can teach them the way to live? Are you inviting people to see that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Are you inviting people to see that there is a way to live that leads to joy and peace and hope? Or are you fearful? Friends, I understand what it's like to be fearful. But the means that God uses to call people out of darkness to light is right in front of me today. It's you. God has called you out of darkness to light so that you would call other people out of darkness to light. Why are you holding back today? The simple invitation from people who around you are dying, from people around you who will go to hell forever. Believer, a simple prayer that you can pray this week is to ask God to give you courage in the situations that you're in with the people that you live by. Many of them are your neighbors. Some of them are your family members. Some of them are your colleagues. And a lot of them go to class with you. Invite them to come and see Peter has not even been introduced in the story before Andrew begins to live in the shadow of his brother as he humbles himself. And we see that the narrative, even though Andrew is the first to meet him, he just immediately fades off the scene. And he lives in the shadow of this brother that he introduces to Jesus. Verse 41, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Once again, John continues to interpret as he adds for his readers the Greek translation of a word so that we don't lose its significance, our third title, Messiah, which means Christ. The majority of first century Judaism understood the Messiah to be the Davidic descendant, the anointed one of God, who would come in and he would overthrow the Romans and reestablish a Jewish kingdom. And that is exactly what they wanted. They are looking for a ruler. They are looking for someone to conquer. They are looking for someone to push people out so they can have what is rightfully theirs. They want a mighty king. They want the one that God has promised. And Jesus is the one that God has promised, Andrew tells us. He is the anointed one. He is the prophet. He is the priest. 
He is the king. And Andrew tells Peter so when he brings him to Jesus. Notice how there's a certain content to what he tells him. He doesn't leave it open-ended for Andrew. Just like we shouldn't leave it open-ended in our evangelism. He's very clear. This Messiah, this is the Christ. He is the one who would suffer and die. The Lamb of God. He makes it clear and explicit. And in this encounter, incredibly, Jesus does something what no friend in here could do. He renames him. Some of you are very close to other people in the room, very, very close in wonderful ways. But I would dare say nobody in this room has ever taken somebody as their friend and said, you know what? I love you so much. You are now Bob. (laughs) Jesus steps on the scene. Verse 42, and he looked at him and said, so you're Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And coming to Jesus, Peter finds one whose ministry supersedes John the Baptist. Jesus' divine foreknowledge enables him to know Peter so thoroughly that he sees not only who Peter is, but what Peter will become. Friends, this is astonishing for us when we go back and we read through the Old Testament. We see that when God changes somebody's name, it had incredible significance for their future. God changes Abram to Abraham, from exalted father to the father of a multitude, even before it's true of him in his life. And then he makes it true of him. He changes Jacob's name to Israel from deceiver to one who strives with God. When he is a liar, he makes him one who holds the covenant promises. And now he comes to Simon, to Cephas, which means Peter, and in Aramaic means rock. But in the fourth gospel and all of the gospels, Peter looks like anything but a rock. He's always following Christ. He's never in doubt, always confident putting his foot in his mouth and running away by the end. At best, we come to Peter and we all identify with him because he's impulsive, he's brash, he's rash. But in Acts, this Peter becomes the leading figure in the church. Jesus renames Peter not because of what he was now, but because of who he would become by God's gracious work in his life. And if you're a Christian here today, God has done the same thing for you. Brothers and sisters, no one except God can foresee the possibilities of what someone will become when they come to Christ. Andrew had no idea what he was doing when he brought his brother to Jesus. He was just introducing him to Jesus. But Jesus calls him and makes Peter what he calls him to be. And he does the same for every Christian. In Christ, you are called a Christian, a little Christ even when you don't look like a little Christ this side of eternity on the way to the heavenly city. And God progressively and slowly makes it more and more true of you so that on that day, you will be who he has pronounced you to be in Christ. Friend, the astonishing mercy is that God did not look at you and see all of your potential and the wonderful person that you are, wonderful though you may be, and potential you may have. He looked at you when you were sinful and weak, and deserve death, and hell, when you deserve judgment, and damnation, and he called you to himself, and he gave you his name, and he is making it true of you in Christ. The astonishing mercy of being one of God's followers is that he would call us to that, and make it true of us, so that we would be declared that in Christ. The day after this encounter with Peter, verse 43, Jesus goes into Galilee, and he calls Philip to him, The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. 
Philip's not given an introduction, though he is more clearly identified in the next verse. So it seems that John expects people to know who Philip is. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And that's all that we ever know of Philip. And Jesus commanded him something very straightforward and clear and simple. Follow me. And once again, Philip learned that you are not promised an explanation on the path of discipleship. You are simply called to follow the one that God has promised. Friends, I wonder if what's holding you back in your discipleship is that you think God owes you answers. God never promised clarity in this life or in the life to come. What he has called you is to follow him. He has called you to follow him in full obedience. And yet we hold back, waiting for clarity, for a special revelation from heaven, for a unique feeling in the gut so that we might finally be prompted to do something. But friends, all we're waiting for is a bad lunch. God has called us to follow him, to be obedient to all of his commands. And he's not promised you that you will always understand the side of eternity, to evangelize and to give, to join and to serve, to proclaim and to pray, to witness and to herald that this is the one that God has provided. If you're a believer, that's the call. And if you're not a believer, that's the call. Follow me. Philip is told to follow Jesus, and he simply turns, and he follows the one that God has promised. And he does, as evidenced by finding Nathanael and saying that this Jesus, the fourth title, is the expected one. Look in verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Jesus again takes center stage and once again the focus is on his identity. All of these titles are telling us something more about who this Jesus is. John wants us to know by the end of the gospel that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. And the only way we can do that is if we have the understanding of what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. So he loads us at the front of the gospel with all of this content. He takes center stage and he focuses on his identity. And he tells us he is the one that Moses wrote about in the law. He is the one whom all of the prophets bear witness to. Not John the Baptist, but Jesus, the Lamb of God. He is the promised coming one who fulfills all of the Old Testament expectation. He's the one that Isaiah prophesied about. He's the one Ezekiel prophesied about. He's the one that they were looking forward to when Moses passed away and Joshua stepped on the scene. He was the one that they thought David was and that Solomon was. He was the one that they were looking for in every book of the Bible. This is the one. That they've been waiting for. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Deuteronomy 18. An expectation that is really clear if we read our Bible closely and see that there is this hope on every page of Scripture for one to come. Deuteronomy 18. We're going to begin reading verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded. This is the one that we are to listen to. 
Jesus, the Christ of God, he is the one that God has provided. All authority and in heaven on earth has been given to him, and he commands us now. The law and the prophets pointed to him. The law and the prophets stirred up hope for him and his coming. And now he has arrived. He has stepped onto the biblical scene, and it is wonderful in John's gospel. Friends, some of you are looking to everyone everywhere for hope and deliverance. But John, at the beginning of this gospel, says, Here he is. Here is hope. Here is deliverance. Here is the one who will save. Here is the one who will forgive. Here is the one who satisfies the longing of your soul. Jesus, the promised one, the Christ of God. So Christian, why? Why do we say we trust in Jesus and look to everywhere, everywhere to everyone else? John is redirecting our gaze like a good parent just pointing a kid in the right direction. Jesus is the God's promised one. He finished all the types and shadows. He finished all of the ceremonial law. He is the fulfillment of all of God, uh, all that God has promised. And in him are life and health and peace. But Nathaniel, like many of you perhaps, is a true skeptic. Verse 46. Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Whether it's from rivalry of small villages or skepticism in general because Nathaniel is just slow to believe. So Philip responds with the only satisfactory response to somebody who's skeptical. Come and see. Philip doesn't answer all of his questions. He just tells him that Jesus can hold up under his scrutiny. Friends, you don't have to answer everybody's question. You just have to assure them that Jesus will hold up under their scrutiny. And if they give their attention to the Bible and learn about this Christ, they will, in God's mercy, be convinced of what is true in the Scripture. Philip simply challenges Nathaniel to investigate his claims for himself. And when he sees that, Jesus is everything, Philip said, uh, so much more. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Jesus' point is that Nathanael is a a genuine person. He's not filled with duplicity. He's not tossed to and fro. He's a true skeptic. He's genuine. He's honest about what he believes. And Nathanael is stunned. He's stunned because Jesus actually knows him. Verse 48. Nathanael said to Jesus, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus' supernatural knowledge and his divine insight identifies him as the one that God has promised. So Nathanael proclaims, verse 49, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. He is, fifth title, Son of God. He is the one with a unique relationship to God the Father. He is not like others. He is not just one of God's Son in Abraham. He is God's Son, Son of God the Father. And He is, sixth title, King of Israel. He is the liberator of God's people who will explain that this kingdom is not of this world. He is the one that they are looking for, but he is a king who is doing something altogether new and altogether different. He's not what they expect because they're looking for the wrong thing. And Nathanael came to see that this Jesus is the one that God promised. When Jesus revealed supernaturally that he knew Nathanael. But, verse 50, Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And once again, revealing to us something about this Jesus. But if we approach him and only believe when we see great things, or because we've expected great things, that we have approached him wrongly. 
Friends, if you will only trust this Christ when he answers your prayer so that you can live your life the way that you want to live it, you have not really trusted in this Christ. Jesus explodes categories here. You will see greater things. Look at him. You will see, first point. Notice second, follow me. You will see. Look again in verse 50. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. John the Baptist, the great figure, has now faded from view completely. And Jesus is once again front and center in John's gospel. And the striking difference between Jesus and John the Baptist is evident in the fact that this Jesus is able to call Philip, follow me. He's able to have knowledge of Nathaniel. I knew you when you were under the fig tree. I know everything about you, just like he knows everything about you today. What you think that is hidden is not. What you think Jesus does not know, he knows. Jesus knew people through and through, and they came to recognize that he is the one God promised. John the Baptist's function has been achieved. But Jesus heightens the importance of their awareness when he says, verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Truly, truly is a phrase that occurs in this form 85 times in John's Gospel. It's never in Matthew. It's never in Mark. It's never in Luke. And it always, in John's Gospel, is a doubling down, an authoritative statement by Jesus as he actually introduces himself, now, seventh title, verse 51, the Son of Man. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus' favorite self-designation, a title that he uses 13 times in John's gospel, son of man pictures a heavenly figure who in the end times is entrusted by God with authority and glory and power. It's a title that Jesus chooses because it does not have overt messianic overtones. So what Jesus does throughout John's gospel is that he fills that title, son of man, with content. And every time he introduces this title, Son of Man, he reveals a little bit more about who he is. People hear these titles and they think that they understand him. But Jesus is constantly subverting their understanding and telling them something more, revealing something true about himself. He chooses it so he can give content so that they might understand what it is for him to be the Christ. And he does that by quoting another passage of Scripture, one that we read earlier in the service. If you have your program, you can look at it now, or you can turn to Genesis 28. This is our first Scripture reading. 
Genesis 28, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down on that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on the ladder. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Jesus' point in evoking this passage is that he is the one who does what that ladder said that it did. It connects heaven and earth. And that, verse 51, provides us with a link to the rest of the gospel. As we're reading through John's gospel, Jesus is the one provided by God who connects heaven and earth. He is the one who God has promised, who is the bridge between eternity and temporality. When Jacob had his dream, Genesis 28, 12, the substance of that revelation was that God's covenant with Abraham was now being made with Jacob also. God had promised Abraham that he would reverse all of the effects of the fall through Abraham's offspring. He had promised Abraham that he would be a great and mighty nation. All peoples would be blessed through Abraham. And Paul picks up on this same thing. Do you want to know if you're a Christian? You need to have the faith of Abraham. What did Abraham do? He believed in God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. This is a great promise indeed. And now Jacob is being told, that will be true of you. All peoples will be blessed because of you. God will be with you. God will establish you, and your people will be in this land. But for Jacob, it was only a dream. And people have been waiting for that dream to be fulfilled for years. And just think of the things that you've dreamed about and hoped for, longing for them to come true. And now here Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of all that you have longed for. I am the answer to your dreams. And instead of the angels ascending and descending on the stairway of Jacob, They are to ascend and descend on Jesus, the stairway of heaven. He is the Son of Man. He will supersede. Jacob is the center and the source of God's purpose for God's covenant people. He is the one to whom everybody must look. And as we continue to move into chapter 2 and chapter 3 and throughout John's gospel, people will continue to see that he is the one that God promised. As Jesus continues to subvert their expectations, he is the Bethel of God. He is the house of God who is tabernacled among God's people. He is the one whom they have been longing for. Jesus is claiming that he is that stairway connecting heaven and earth. And our response today, friends, should be the same as Jacob's. But instead of saying, how awesome is this place? We should say, how awesome is this person? Jesus is the one that God has promised. Because all of God's promises find their yes and their amen in Jesus. Believer, 
Jesus is the one that God has promised. So follow him in holiness and obedience. And non-Christian, Jesus is the one that God has promised. So follow him in first-time repentance and faith. John the Baptist's words about Jesus persuaded disciples that Jesus really was the long-awaited Messiah and convinced them that Jesus is the central purpose. His central purpose in coming was that he, the Lamb of God, would take away their sins. He was an authentic spokesperson, and so were the word's witnesses throughout this chapter, authentically identifying the Messiah using a whole host of Old Testament criteria. Jesus is the one that God has promised. So friends, why are we looking anywhere else? We too must recognize that he's the one that God has promised. And that is exactly what this table reveals to us. As we visualize that Jesus is the one that God has promised, as we visualize what the promised one has done for us, each time we gather around this table, we are not only visualizing that his body was broken for us and that his blood was shed for us, but that we as are one people in Christ as we gather around this table. The reason that we come down and break off from a common loaf is to remind ourselves that we all stand together in Christ. We are part of one people in Christ, men and women, young and old, rich and poor, black and white and other, people from all different backgrounds, gathering together under the banner of the one that God has promised, Jesus, the Messiah of God. But friends, if we are to share rightly in these mysteries, if we're to be people who are nourished by this food when we gather around it, we have to remember the dignity of this table, which is why Paul calls upon us to prepare ourselves for this table. As he writes to the Corinthians, he corrects them for their abuses and misuse of the table. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly... We would not be judged, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Friends, the benefit is great when we gather around the table, and the excitement as we walk through the room is often palpable as we sing. If we approach God with penitent hearts, pursuing holiness, longing to be obedient people, but Paul tells us that the danger is great if we approach this table improperly. That actually, when we do that, we judge ourselves. Friends, let me encourage you today to examine your life and examine your conduct. Not by the people you're comparing yourself to in the room, but by God's commandments this morning. So that you might perceive, not have you offended somebody here, but have you offended a holy God? Have you left undone what you should have done? Promises that you have made that you have not kept, whether in thought or word or deed. Have you acknowledged your sin before God Almighty? Not simply so that you might not feel guilty, but so that your life might be changed and amended. And have you been forgiving towards others as God in Christ has forgiven you? Matthew 6, verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Friends, who are you withholding forgiveness from today? There's no reason you can't, while we're taking the elements, go to that person today 
and ask for forgiveness and extend forgiveness to them. And if in your preparation you need help and counsel on how to confess sins and pursue forgiveness, hear the words of this same apostle later when he wrote to another church. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Recently, I was counseling with somebody, and they were struggling with sin and their own forgiveness. And I asked them, how would you counsel yourself if you were encouraging yourself today? A question that I got from one of our other pastors, Tim Garber. And that person said, I would assure them of the grace of God for sinners, that they too can be forgiven, and that they could not send themselves out of the reach of God's grace. Friends, that's true for you today. So John writes, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. He appeases God's wrath. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Repentance removes doubt. It gives assurance of pardon. It strengthens our faith. It gives us confidence as we approach this table. As we come to Christ our Lord who loves us and washed us with his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to serve our God and Father for the glory of the church forevermore. Friends, if you have repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've believed the gospel, the good news that this church preaches, if you have been baptized and are a member of a church that believes and preaches the same gospel that this church preaches, if you're a member in good standing of that church, then we invite you to come to the table today. And friend, if not, the most godly thing that you can do today is just stay in your seat. I know there's a lot of pressure when everybody seems to be coming forward. But the most godly thing that you could do is stay in your seat and find one of the people who came forward today following the service or one of the pastors at the doors and talk to them about why you stayed in your seat. Whether you're a believer struggling with sin or a non-Christian who's struggling to understand what it means to become a Christian. But for everyone else, friends, this table is for you. Come and see. This is the Christ, the one God has promised. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us without direction, that in your mercy and by your grace and for your glory, you have given us your word. Your word is truth. It is a light unto our feet. It is a lamp unto our path. And we pray, Father, that you would help us today to believe what we have studied in your word. That you would help us to throw off sins that have easily entangled. That you would stir our hearts and affections. That we might look afresh at the Christ, the one who has been promised by God. And Father, that we might come afresh to the one who connects heaven and earth. And Father, I pray for all those who are here today who have not yet believed those things, that you would do the good work of regenerating their dead hearts, of causing them to be born again, so that today they might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing they may have life in his name. Let me ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.